0: Hi everyone! I'm dropping in your feed with a bonus episode today because it's finally here! Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History from Penguin Books is available now in a bookstore near you! This is a new book filled with stories that have never been shared on this show before, and some that have been greatly expanded from their original episodes, and even contains little sidebars with more of the weirdest stories in art history that you've been enjoying here for these past four years. It's been an utter joy to write, and I am thrilled to share it with you. So I'll go ahead and post some purchasing links in the show notes of this episode, as well as on our associated blog post. But please pick up a copy today if you haven't already pre-ordered and share the news with your family and friends, and I hope you enjoy our little book. My hope is that it is a fun read in our challenging times, and it makes you think, as always, about art in a little bit of a different way. The book is available in three formats, so if you'd like to buy a physical copy, we've got you covered there. Or is an ebook your thing? Yep, because we got that too. I'm also super excited to say that I was asked to record the audiobook version, and a little clip from that show is exactly what I'm going to share with you today. So stay tuned to check out one of the chapters of Art Curious, a little sneak peek. You can buy the audiobook directly from Penguin Random House, from Amazon, and from Audible, as well as Google Play. Remember to check the links in the show notes if you'd like to purchase it directly there. Before I play the excerpt, I just have a few more things. First, I want to thank you for listening to this show. I made the podcast on a whim back in 2016, but you have shared your love of art and storytelling with me, and it is through your enthusiasm and support that this show continues today and how this book has found its audience. So thank you for listening. Second, we're holding a virtual event with my favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books here in Raleigh, North Carolina, on Wednesday, September 23rd, and that's from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern. This is a free event, so it's open to anyone anywhere in the world, but you must register online for the event in order to get the links and all the goodies. Please join me wherever you are, and I would love to share this book with you. Quail Ridge, by the way, is taking requests for signed and personalized copies of this book. So if you'd like an autographed copy for yourself or as a holiday gift, because of course the holidays are coming up, please order your book through quailridgebooks.com, and it would be a pleasure to sign your copy. And finally, one little request from me. Please snap a picture of yourself with your book when you receive it or of you listening to your audiobook or reading it on your Kindle or iPad and please share it with me. Post it if you can on your social media pages and tag me. I'm at Art Curious Pod or please email me your picture so that I can share it on my pages too. And of course, you can always reach me at my email address, which is jennifer at artcuriouspodcast.com. I'd love to see you enjoying this book, and it would so make my day, so thank you for doing that. And now, on to the clip. Please enjoy this exclusive excerpt of the audiobook of Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. I was a podcast fan long before I started my own show. Binging the likes of NPR's Fresh Air and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me as well as Pottercast, one of the first Harry Potter fan downloads, Nerd Alert, for years. But an all-time favorite in the pre-serial era was, and still is, Ira Glass's This American Life, T.A.L. I know, it's not an earth-shattering, out-of-the-box confession, as T.A.L. has long been a critically lauded and beloved radio program. I recall one episode in particular that had an especially interesting 11-minute segment. In Your Junk in a Box, contributor and TAL cult favorite Starly Kine covered the incredible work being done by a group of folks in Pittsburgh who spend their time cataloging an insanely high number of time capsules. 610 of them, to be exact. That number alone, and the fact that there are people who spend their workdays studying actual time capsules, was intriguing enough. But I was flabbergasted when I learned that these time capsules were all created and kept by a single person. And that person wasn't some random guy. This obsessive capsule creator was none other than Andy Warhol, 1928-1987. through As an art historian and hardworking curator, I was fascinated and not a little bit ashamed that I hadn't known about Andy Warhol's time capsules. And yes, that's what he called them, even though they aren't like the berry in the backyard type of time capsules you're probably imagining right now. But I take solace in the knowledge that only a small number of people, mainly his assistants, knew of Warhol's time capsules— and his feverish collecting and containing was largely kept a secret during his lifetime. It might seem as if these capsules are of minor interest to those who are fans of Warhol's pop art, but in fact, the opposite should be true. Taken together, these 610 capsules can be considered one stellar, strange, unwieldy work by one of the most unique minds in modern art. It's hard to imagine a world without Andy Warhol. He's considered one of the two most influential and popular artists of the 20th century, alongside Pablo Picasso. And like Picasso, he's got great name and brand recognition. Mention Andy Warhol to a passerby, and they probably can either visualize his iconic art— Think garish silkscreen paintings of Marilyn Monroe or Jackie Kennedy, or lines of canvases depicting Campbell's soup cans. Or even envisage the artist himself, with his all-black hipster clothes, dark sunglasses, and a shock of white hair. He vastly affected the art world, but also extended far beyond it, inspiring musicians, filmmakers, fashion and graphic designers, and more. And we can't escape him. Not that many art aficionados want to escape him. As Phoebe Hoban, the biographer of Warhol acolyte John michel Basquiat, wrote, To legions of art students, Warhol was the white-wigged Wizard of Oz, his famous career a grail to every MFA and struggling downtown artist in residence. Many Warhol fans gravitate toward that white wig, his mysterious and eccentric personality, and the glam of the factory his ultra-cool come den of artists and aesthetes, which was frequently filled to the brim with silvery tinfoil, heroin-chic models, and drugs. But Andy Warhol's beginnings were rather humble in comparison to the lifestyle afforded by his meteoric rise. He was born Andrew Warholla in Pittsburgh on August 6, 1928. And though American-born, Andy was deeply affected by the outsider status of his immigrant parents who moved from Slovakia before Andy's birth and maintained very strong ties to their Slovakian roots. In fact, like many newcomers to America, the Warhola family specifically chose their new home for its Slovakian population, with Pittsburgh as the epicenter of a sizable enclave of Eastern European immigrants. To young Andy, this probably felt a little bit like belonging and yet not belonging. He was American, yes, but also not quite, by virtue of his family ties. This sensation of being an outsider persisted through much of Warhol's childhood and was made more intense by bouts of severe illness. In 1936, when he was eight years old, he contracted Sydenham's chorea, also known as St. Vitus's dance, a rare and sometimes fatal disease of the nervous system that causes involuntary movements in one's limbs. He was bedridden for several months during that year and continued to have periods of confinement throughout his youth. Such ailments kept him separate from other children, as he missed large portions of schooling and probably contributed to a developing fear of doctors and hospitals that ballooned to severe hypochondria in later life. But there was a silver lining. To cope with his illness and feelings of isolation, Andy deeply bonded with his mother who shared her love of art and taught him to draw so he could pass the time on bed rest. Around this same period, Mama Warholla bought her son his first camera. Drawing and photography soon became the young Warhol's two biggest passions and would ultimately change his life and art history. Andy Warhola pursued art throughout his young life, eventually graduating from the Carnegie Institute for Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, in 1949 with a bachelor's degree in design. Soon after graduation, he moved to New York City, the heart of the post-war art world, to begin his career and develop his own personal branding, an element that would grow increasingly important to him. One of the first things he did upon arrival was to drop the final A from his last name, altering Warhola into Warhol. It would be just the beginning of meticulous crafting of the iconic Andy Warhol persona. Best Friends Forever Warhol and Basquiat Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat, they're the coolest odd couple in art history. Their funky friendship still much admired and discussed today. Legend has it that the two artists first met after the young and broke Basquiat crashed a business lunch between Warhol and art critic Henry Geldzahler in 1979. After spotting the artist, Basquiat, a longtime Andy fan, burst into the restaurant and attempted to sell Warhol a postcard of his artwork. Geldzahler balked, but Warhol caved, becoming one of the first collectors of Basquiat's works. After the pair was reintroduced at Warhol's factory in 1982, they became nearly inseparable, with each artist benefiting from the energy and ideas of the other. With Warhol's advice and connections, Basquiat grew from an up and coming graffiti artist to the creator of some of the most expensive works of art available at auction today. Basquiat's own canvases garner nearly as much in sales as his friends' canvases. For his part, Warhol, who had long stopped painting by hand by the 1980s, so admired Basquiat's gesturalism that he returned to hand painting, entering a new and reinvigorated period in his late career. Originally, Warhol was a commercial artist, a highly successful one at that, creating award-winning content for the likes of Glamour magazine, where he landed his first job. But as the 1950s came to a close, he began focusing more of his time on painting. And in the early 1960s, he debuted his brand new concept, pop art, which focused on the high art presentation of mass-produced consumer and commercial items. In 1962, he exhibited a series of 32 paintings at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles, which painstakingly replicated the look of Campbell's soup cans. To top it off, all of Warhol's canvases were lined together on a shelf that ran the length of the gallery, effectually giving the space the look and feel of a grocery store. Living approximately 50 years later, it might be hard for some of us, especially those of us born after Warhol's heyday, to understand the sensation that this caused throughout the art world, which permeated into the cultural experience of the time. But in 1962, this was huge. Why would a fine artist devote his time to painting images of something used every day? Something mass-produced? Something so common? Andy Warhol lived and breathed this wonderful, befuddling concept, pioneering pop art as a purposeful mishmash of popular culture, mass media, and traditional fine art methodology, all with a wink of humor and irony.